and a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, two days ago, the Archbishop of Detroit, um, Alan Vigneron, released an outstanding pastoral letter dealing with the question of gender confusion, and he began it with a quote from Gaudium et Spes, uh, the Church's uh, Vatican II's uh, uh, constitution uh, dealing with the Church in the modern world. And he begins this way, The joy and hope, the grief and anguish of the men of our time, especially of those who are poor or afflicted in any way, are the joy and hope, the grief and anguish of the followers of Christ as well. This certainly is something to keep in mind when we approach this question of gender dysphoria, gender confusion, and uh, my guest has written an entire book dealing with the Church's response to gender ideology. Uh, Attorney John Bursch is the author of Loving God's Children, the Church and Gender Ideology. He's a senior, a senior counsel and vice president of appellate advocacy for Alliance Defending Freedom and has argued 12 U.S. Supreme Court cases in addition to dozens of state Supreme Court cases. He's also served as Solicitor General for the state of Michigan from 2011 to 2013. You can follow his work at adflegal.org. John, good to have you back. Thanks. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on Saturday uh, as we do our uh, annual Familiaris Consortio Conference. So thank you. Yeah, delighted that we're going to do that and spend the entire conference just focused on this issue of gender ideology. Yeah, yeah. It's so important. And it, this, this, this topic uh, is still unfamiliar to a lot of people. Um, it's different than homosexuality because most people have acquaintances uh, who are homosexual or have sons or daughters who are, but not many people actually know those who are dealing with gender dysphoria or gender confusion, and so it's difficult to know quite how to respond to it. Um, yeah, it can be, although that's changing quickly. Yeah. Um, there are some states now where up to 10% of young people, adolescents and teenagers, identify yeah. as transgender. So yeah. if, if you haven't had this experience in your family or a, a close friend's family, um, just make sure that you're, you're getting educated about the issue because it's going to happen soon. Uh, it's becoming an unavoidable cultural conflict. Yeah, the New York Times had a long piece a few weeks ago, February 2nd, I think it was, uh, talking about a Grand Rapids uh, young woman who uh, began feeling as though she was not in her right body. She ends up uh, telling her parents. Uh, they go through all kinds of consultation. Uh, she ends up with a double mastectomy, hormones. She becomes a, a, She moves from biological uh, woman to uh, trans, uh, to a male. And she said that through the whole process, nobody ever asked her why she feels this disjunction between herself and her body. She's now undergoing a detransition. Uh, so I'm wondering how much of what we're seeing happening now with uh, young people especially, claiming that they are um, gender dysphoric or gender confused, how much of that is... Uh, well, a fad. <laughs> well, wh whether it's a, a diagnosable mental health issue, which gender dysphoria is, 
or a fad, which we've undoubtedly seen that too. Abigail Schreier um, wrote a, a great book on, on that topic. That's right. Um, yeah. We know that it happens a lot. And what happens are that, that doctors at gender clinics and Planned Parenthood and other places quickly rush those kids as soon as they express any indication that they're, they're trans into puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgery, even for adolescents and teenagers, that set them up for a lifetime of heartache like that detransitioner. Actually, there was a whole series of detransitioners uh, discussed in the New York Times article. That's right, yeah. And what's, so, what's so sad about that? is that if we allow young people who are experiencing these feelings to just work it out without affirming their preferred pronouns or their dress or their using the opposite sex, sex as shower or clothes, any of those things, 80 to 95% of them will naturally desist and align their mind with their body. So these medical interventions are incredibly dangerous and occurring on a great many young people when it's not even necessary. At the same time, um, usually these feelings stem from other things like that girl from Michigan suggested. 60% of kids who have gender dysphoria have suffered some kind of sexual abuse. And and that may be other issues too. And by immediately rushing to the drugs and the surgery, we're not addressing any of those underlying problems that are actually causing the dysphoria. So it's a huge disservice to our young people. In fact, uh, the case of Grace uh, that leads that uh, New York Times piece actually says that she had, they finally discovered that she had been sexually abused as a child. But nobody had asked the question, you know, before the double mastectomy and cross-sex hormones. I mean... just tragic. Isn't that terribly sad? Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a failure on the part of those doctors to respond the way that the Catholic Church calls us to respond to anyone who's struggling, and that's with pastoral accompaniment. Yeah. And pastoral accompaniment doesn't mean giving into what somebody wants. That's not loving. It's not willing what's best for that person. It means walking with them, getting to the true root of their problem, and helping them solve it. And these clinics are doing the exact opposite, often for profit motives. Yeah. You know, people don't realize that one of the fastest growing revenue streams for Planned Parenthood are puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. Mm. Now, now, the United States is kind of at the forefront uh, of this. Uh, a number of European uh, countries have pulled back. They're much more cautious these days. Tell me about that. I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, countries like the UK, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, um, all of them were very early adapt- adopters of the just so-called gender-confirming care. Um, but those countries, unlike the United States, uh, in addition to doing it longer, have national health systems where someone's medical records are carefully tracked over the entire course of their life. In the United States, if someone has a gender transition, uh, you have no way to follow up with them after 10 or 15 years to see how it went. Mm. In Europe, they can do that. And what these countries did after pushing these things for many years is pull back and basically shut all those clinics down and said the best evidence that we have shows that these gender-affirming care surgeries, the medications and the the surgeries, um, are not doing any good at best, and at worst they're causing more problems. For adults who transition, um, they determined through these systematic long-term studies that suicide rates actually increased that mental health problems actually increase. And then, of course, you've got all the side effects like loss of bone density and heart problems and brain problems Mm. and loss of sexual function and loss of fertility. Uh, So the whole thing was just a total train wreck. And so they they pulled it all back and said, we're not going to do this anymore until there's better evidence-based studies that show this works. And yet the American medical 
American medical community is jumping into it full force. Yeah. Sounds like a great opportunity for the church, however, to offer good news. It does. And that's why I love to see letters like this letter from our archbishop here in Detroit. Um, It's one of many wonderful letters that bishops around the country have published that talk about the Catholic understanding of the, the human person, that our human ecology is that we are embodied souls. Our, our souls aren't something that's just trapped in a body that we can manipulate, but that our physical body says something about who we are, and that if you reject that, you reject a gift that God gave you, you reject your identity as a son or a daughter of God, and, and that makes it impossible to have real relationships with other people. You know, if that's our starting place, and then we talk about all these medical harms that come to kids who identify as transgender and then are encouraged to pursue that path, um, many more people can be helped. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have any idea of what percentage of those who underwent uh, these various cross-sex hormones and then puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and eventually um, mutilation of their bodies, do we know how many, what percentage of those um, regret it uh, and move towards detransition? I wish we had those numbers, but that's part of the problem with the American medical system, not having a a way to track someone over a 10 to 20 year period after they've had one of these transitions. Anecdotally, what we know are that there are thousands of detransitioners. The New York Times piece was just kind of the tip of the iceberg, but you can find whole, you know, blogs and um, other websites that collect the stories of these detransitioners. And they all express regret, and they all ask very similar questions. Why didn't anyone tell me that if I changed my mind, my body would be ruined? Mm. Why didn't anybody tell me that the best medical evidence showed that what I was about to do was a really bad idea? Why didn't anybody tell me that there were alternatives to medications and surgeries, things like counseling, therapy? Um, And and so that really should be the question that haunts us as Catholics, um, at, at some point, it's inevitable we're going to have someone like this who crosses our path, right. and we need to be ready to give them this information and answer those questions when, when they have them, because I, I can't imagine anything more haunting than someone coming back after the fact and saying, why didn't you tell me? Yeah. Uh, just what, what, would, what should a person do if all of a sudden uh, a son or daughter or nephew or niece discloses that they are uncomfortable in their body, that they think they perhaps may be a boy when in fact their body is that of a girl. Where do you start? What do you say to begin with? Well, even before that moment comes, hopefully you learn enough about the subject so that you can understand all the points that we've been talking about and more. I I encourage people to read the book, uh, to come to the conference on Saturday, and to explore all these great resources from the U.S. bishops, because we need to be well-armed with information and church teaching before that question comes. Yes. yes. Um, But when it it does come, you know, we we don't want to respond by dismissing the concern or, you know, acting out of anger or impatience or anything like that. Instead, we need to start a conversation and ask a lot of questions. So why do you feel that way? Why is it that you think that you might be a boy born in a girl's body? What does that mean to you? You know, what do you think it feels like to be a girl? Um, and, And start exploring those things. And if it becomes part of a conversation, you may be able to get to the root of something which has nothing to do with gender identity, but perhaps an incident of abuse. 
And, and at the end of that conversation, to encourage them to seek some counseling with a Catholic counselor who will only give counseling in accordance with the Church's teaching. John, thank you once again for being with me. I'm looking forward again to Saturday. Uh, we've got a great conference going on, male and female. He created them, responding to gender dysphoria in truth and charity. You can get more information at fgrhs.org events. Thanks, John. Thank you. See you Saturday.